Welcome to a Thrifted Pair podcast, where we talk about all things related to reselling and give a snapshot into our business each week through our numbers. We are your hosts. I'm Ken. And I'm Eric. And we are the owners of Little Elm Goods. We sell on Poshmark, eBay, and Mercari under the name Little Elm Goods. You can find the link to our stores in the show notes. Feel free to add and talk to us directly on Instagram. Mine is Little Elm Thrifts. And mine's Little Elm Goods. This is episode five, dreaming big and setting goals as a reseller. Last week, we talked about developing a bias towards action and how to identify problems and then how to experiment and come up with solutions that work. This week, we wanted to talk about how to set ambitious goals as a reseller and then design a plan to make them happen. This week, before we got into our main topic, there were a few things that happened on eBay that I wanted to talk about. The first being that eBay is getting ready by the end of July to have a majority of their sellers switch to managed payments. This is something that they've been talking about for the last year where they have been figuring out how to get all the bugs out because for a while you couldn't do global shipping if you had managed payments and there were a bunch of other glitches but they seem to have gotten a lot of them figured out. It seems like they're ready to roll it out to the entire selling community. To get us set up for that I went ahead and got us enrolled into managed payments for eBay this week. When I had originally set it up I'd put it under our business name but eBay had issues with that because the checking account that we use for our business wasn't a business checking account that was set up in our LLC's name so I ended up having to switch it back because we don't see the point in jumping through all these hoops and overcomplicate it right now if at a certain point in the future we find that that's more beneficial we'll end up going that route. The other thing that happened on eBay this week, which raised some questions for me, was that a buyer bought a pair of Saucony Jazz Pro Lows from us six days ago. The way we do things is we don't deactivate them from the other platforms until the buyer pays for the item because we found that sometimes people will just buy things and then they don't pay. Yeah, I mean, it's a very common thing. In the last two weeks, we've probably had 10 to 12 items that people have bought that they just never paid for. So we don't see the point in taking them off the market on the other platforms when we could actually end up selling them somewhere else and just get get them out of our house. So a couple days later that pair ended up selling on Poshmark and we you know we sent it out uh, to the buyer on Poshmark and eBay didn't have an option for us to cancel that order. Four days passed and then yesterday the buyer ended up paying for this item on Friday and I contacted the buyer and let them know that hey it's been six days since you bought this pair and we've already sold it to somebody else so I'm gonna go ahead and cancel this order. I mean you snooze you lose right? It's something that I don't quite understand and I'm sure someone who's done eBay a lot longer than we have could explain why eBay is set up this way, but why are buyers allowed to buy something, essentially take it off the market and then not pay? Like, why is that a thing that's allowed? Like, am I missing something? Literally any other marketplace that we use, it's like if someone makes an offer on an item and we accept it, it instantly charges them and then our items sold to them and we ship it. But on eBay, if someone makes an offer or buys something outright, uh, 
you know, until they decide, oh, we're going to pay for it. It's just in limbo. Yeah. So last week I had five or six items that I ended up putting uh, unpaid item cases on. And the same thing happened this week. And I just don't get why that's something that eBay thinks is a feature and not a bug. It's a, it's a big waste of our time having to constantly go in every few days and be like, unpaid item case, unpaid item case. Like, why can't they just fucking charge people? It gives people the opportunity to like fuck with you basically because they can just go, oh, I don't want this person to be selling this while I'm selling it. So I'm just going to use a fake account to like buy it and not pay. And then the item's off the market so I can sell my item or whatever. Like, I don't know if that's the case, but it just feels like that's some scummy shit people could do. Yeah, I think you're right that people could do that. But I honestly think that it's just a lot of flaky buyers who will buy stuff at night when they're drunk and then they wake up in the morning and they realize, oh, why the hell did I buy this? I'm just not going to pay for it. Yeah, I guess. Or they found it cheaper somewhere else or whatever, which is fine. I just don't get why eBay does it like this. And like but. I said, maybe it's something that, you know, is a relic of an older time when that was the standard. And maybe someone can explain that to me. But as far as I know, Amazon, Poshmark, Mercari and every other platform, you know, probably Etsy and Tradesy and all those too. When you make an offer, you're essentially saying, yes, I'm going to buy this right now. Not, hey, I might buy this six days from now. Anyway, let's change topics before I have like an aneurysm over here. <laughs> let's get into the main topic that I wanted to get into this week. So we're heading into June now. It's about halfway through the year. And we decided it would be a good time to take a look at our goals, evaluate them, and see if we should set some more comprehensive goals going forward. For me personally, without having goals, it feels like I'm just treading water going through the day-to-day -day operations. When we first started, I used to set small achievable goals and I'd reverse engineer our way to where we are currently. While this was not a bad way to start goal setting, there are two traps that are really hard to avoid when you only set small achievable goals. The first is that it will trigger your need for closure. So you will set goals that are trivial just to cross them off or even set goals that you have already completed just to get the satisfaction of closing them out. Because it feels good to cross stuff off your list, you end up creating small goals as a way to repair your mood rather than as a way of being productive. The other trap that you could fall into is that if you only set small achievable goals, you're only going to see small, you know, very achievable growth in your business. And that can be very hard to keep you motivated if that's all you're doing all the time. If you don't know what your overall big reason for doing reselling is. Now, I just want to kind of add to that a little bit that there's nothing wrong with setting small goals periodically if you need a boost in your mood or something. For example, we ran a sale recently and it was used, you know, as a pick me up for my mood, to be quite honest, because our previous couple of days, our sales were OK, but they weren't great by any means. We had been bringing in, you know, a lot of sales recently and then the sales just knocked down a decent amount. So I was just like, we're going to do a sale now. In the book Smarter, Better, Faster, the author Charles Dunig wrote a case study about General Electric and how they developed their goals in the 80s. They developed a system called SMART Goals, where SMART was short for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Realistic, and On a Timeline. While it helped GE triple their stock value in eight years, 
there were still departments that were failing and adding even more realistic or specific goals didn't seem to help after a certain point. Even though everyone who worked in these departments really enjoyed following and using the SMART system. GE brought in outside consultants and academics who realized that while these departments were setting goals that were specific, they were also very trivial to the point where they were not worth pursuing at all. So in order to combat getting trapped with these super specific SMART goals, uh, the consultants suggested that GE start with stretch goals that would center around the objectives that were most important to them. Stretch goals are there to remind yourself what's most important to you, what you're working towards, and it helps so you don't get lost in the minute details. However, the problem with putting a stretch goal at the top of a to-do list is that it can make it seem very daunting. You know, if you write down run a marathon or lose 30 pounds, it's not clear where to start on that. So the idea is to complement a stretch goal into component parts and you do that by using the SMART plan where you break down the steps into things that are specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and on a timeline. For instance, instead of saying I will run more, your goal could be to run 5 miles. Because you've put a number on it, it's measurable and you know that it's achievable because you can already run three miles. You make it realistic by looking at your calendar and finding more time to run and then mapping it onto a timeline. If you can run three miles now, then the aim should be to run four miles next month and then five miles the month after. If you have followed our Instagram over the last year, you can see this process working itself out in real time as we intuitively figured out how to grow organically. So a real world example of this that ended up changing an entire industry was the development of the Japanese bullet train. In the 1950s after the Second World War, Japan was intensely focused on restarting its economy. A large portion of the country's population lived in between the cities of Tokyo and Osaka, which were separated by just 320 miles of train track. Every day, tens of thousands of people and tons of industrial goods traveled between these two cities. But because Japan had so many mountains in between them, the rails had to be very convoluted and there was no straight shot between the two cities. Not to mention the fact that they were still using a rail system that was severely outdated from before the First World War, which made it even slower. Because of how rough and mountainous the Japanese terrain was that the trains were forced to run on, this trip would take nearly 20 hours. So in 1955, the head of the Japanese railway system issued a challenge to the nation's finest engineers. He wanted them to invent a faster train. Six months later, the engineers unveiled a prototype that was capable of going 65 miles per hour, a speed at that time that made it one of the fastest passenger trains in the world. But he said that wasn't good enough, that he wanted it to be 120 miles per hour. Uh, the engineers told the head of the railway that that wasn't a realistic expectation, that it was instead really dangerous because a train designed that to go that fast along all of that mess would derail if it turned too sharply. It would probably kill everybody on board. Uh, instead of 120 miles per hour, the engineers said they could do 70 miles an hour and that would be more realistic to shoot for, 75 if they were lucky. So three months after that conversation, the engineers came back with an engine that could go 75 miles an hour, just like they promised. And the head of the railway said that 75 miles an hour 
hour was not acceptable and that if they only did incremental improvements, they would only see incremental results and that wasn't acceptable. He told the engineers that they had two years to figure out how to make a railway system that would let their trains go 120 miles an hour. So the engineers got to work and over the next two years, they ran a ton of experiments. They designed train cars that each had their own motors. They rebuilt gears so that they meshed with less friction. They discovered that their new cars were too heavy for the existing tracks and ended up reinforcing the rails, which had the added bonus of increasing the train stability, which let them add another half a mile per hour to the train speed. There were hundreds of innovations like this, both big and small, which ended up making the train just a little bit faster than before. After tons of tiny tweaks and years of hard work and hustle under the Japanese railway chief's go big or go home style of leadership, the very same team of engineers that thought it was impossible to go 120 miles an hour ended up building a 120 mile per hour train. In 1964, the Takedo Shinkansen, the world's first bullet train, left Tokyo and made its 320 20 mile trip towards Osaka. Except this time, instead of taking 20 hours, they did it in three and a half hours. Soon enough, they had other bullet trains running to other cities as well. It resulted in a massive economic boost for the entire country. Uh, the development of the bullet train was a critical part in spurring their growth well into the 1980s. Within a decade of that innovation, their technologies developed, and it served as a guide for other high-speed trains in France, Germany, Australia, and it revolutionized industrial design all across the globe. The point of this case study was to show that there's a real impact to committing to stretch goals and people have consistently found that committing to ambitious, seemingly out of reach objectives can spark outsized jumps in innovation and productivity. For stretch goals to be inspiring, it often needs to be paired with something like the smart system. The reason why we need both stretch goals and smart goals is that audaciousness and ambition on its own can be terrifying if there's no way to figure out how to start them. This is something that Ken and I sat down and came up with at the end of last year. We did it on our own without even knowing about, you know, stretch goals and smart plans. It just happened intuitively. By the end of 2019, we had made around 49000 in sales. And we thought, you know, for our first year, that was pretty decent. For our second year, we thought it would be ambitious to break the six-figure sales mark, essentially doubling our sales. At the time, we felt like we were going as hard as we could and didn't really know how to get to that point where we could become a six-figure selling team. But we did have a lot of data that we were keeping track of that we thought would help us. I mean, we were tracking how much we were listing, how much we were selling every month, and our sell-through rate was right around 54%. I would say that that's probably one of the most important things that you can track as a reseller because it gives you a quick understanding of how well your business is doing. Our average sales price at the time was right around $35. So we used that as the second metric to figure out how to reverse engineer our stretch goal and get our store up to 100k in sales in 2020. Knowing our average sales price and dividing it by 100k gave us right around 2850 sales that we would have to make in 2020, which averaged out to 238 sales a month. 
month. So since we knew our sell-through rate, it meant that we would have to list around 440 items a month, which would allow us to hit our goals. And we knew that that was the minimum we'd have to do. So breaking that down even more, assuming each month had four weeks of five workdays, we would have to make sure we listed around 22 items a day. So after all of that math, we had a general rule that we understood. It gave us an idea of what we needed to follow. But at the same time, we were listing about 10 items a day at best. Going into January, we started to aggressively change our processes so that we could start pushing our listings higher than that to reach our goals. By giving ourselves a stretch goal that was way beyond our capacities, we started to figure out how to do more with the timeline that we had. By breaking down our ambitious stretch goal into much smaller components, we had created a smart plan that we could follow. It was specific. We wanted to double our sales in our second year. It was measurable. The target was set at $100,000 in total sales. It was achievable. We had to figure out how to double our listings per day and be consistent for a year. Realistic. We believed it was possible but needed to build better processes to make it happen. And we had a timeline where we gave ourselves a year to make this work. So we're at 22 weeks into this year. We sold around 54k with a total sales count of almost 1200. We have another 30 weeks left. So if we can stay consistent, we should be able to hit our target of six figures right around 2815 sales. After June, we might revisit our goals and update our stretch goal again to see if we can push ourselves even more in the second half of this year. Because at the rate we're going, we should hit around 120,000 in sales this year. It's always good to reevaluate your goals and make sure that it's something that is pushing you to innovate and better your business. It was something that we didn't think was remotely possible at the beginning of the year. And now we're just like, how do we make it harder? So that pretty much wraps up our thoughts on stretch goals and smart plans and how to make them work. And we hope that you guys all found it useful and that you guys try it out and see if it helps you with your businesses. Going from that, we figured we'd talk our numbers for the week. These are our sales for the week of May 30th to June 5th. We had total active items of 1,166 and we sold 78 items. Our total sales were right around $3,500 and our cost of goods were right around $1,700. And we ended the week with a net profit of a little over $1,800. Our average sales price for the week was a little above $45. And while we didn't bring any new inventory in this week, we did list 78 items. The reason that our sales were so much higher this week was because we ran this sale on Poshmark on Wednesday. And when I say sale, I just mean offer to likers. But the thing is, we actually don't use offer to likers all that often. So when we do end up using it, we see a lot of sales coming in. And we usually only do it once every couple months. Yeah, I mean, for us specifically, we we used to send offer to likers super aggressively, but we found that it wasn't yielding the results that we wanted. So we stopped doing it as frequently. And now when we do it, you know, a lot of sales come in, which is nicer in my opinion, because it feels like what you're doing is actually working. Right. On average, it, when we did it every day, we would only see maybe one or two sales tops, you know, coming in from offer to likers. And it was taking a lot of our time. Yeah, anywhere from half an hour to an hour a day that I thought would be better used doing something like listing or cleaning or something that I considered to be adding value to our business. But that rant aside, uh, for the sales breakdown, um, Poshmark, we sold 55 items for about 2K. Mercari, we sold four items around 213. Womp womp. 
Yeah, uh, Mercari is very hit or miss for us, but it's usually miss. Mercari is like that leap of faith that we keep taking for some reason. Well, see, there are weird weeks where Poshmark will be very slow and Mercari will have 20 sales and we have no way of explaining what causes that. So yeah, we definitely did a lot better this week considering that our Poshmark sales this week were more than our total sales last week, you know? So it really shows that if you run sales, you know, occasionally you can really see some big results out of them. Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't list as much as I wanted to this week, but I was a bit busy with some other things. So the goal for next week is to, you know, make up for that and list a lot more. All right, so moving on to customer issues. On eBay, there was a pair of Chacos that this buyer sent us a message on going, do these have a back strap on them or no? And they don't because they're more of like a flip-flop style Chaco. So we told them no, and then we sent it to them and they were like... Oh, they keep falling off of my foot. And then they sent them back to us. So yeah, so those uh, were sent back as, you know, doesn't fit and it's on its way back to us. The other eBay return this week, which, hey, I'm glad there were only two returns. The other one was a pair of Converse Chuck Taylors, men's size 12, which again, it was not a stressful situation. They just said it didn't fit and we got them back this morning. So I'm going to be refunding the buyer on those. Side note, I'm not entirely sure why everybody tries on the shoes and then takes them out on a walk right after they do that. Because like these shoes came back like pretty dirty. So like if you're going to buy shoes online, like put them on and like try them on in your house and like walk around in your house and go, oh, these might be not the best shoes for me. Like they're not comfortable. They're not supportive or whatever. Like I understand with running shoes, if you need to get out there and try them to make sure that they're working for you. But these are converse. Like I know you're not out there running in them like take a minute walk around your house and go oh these are not for me yeah it's always like oh i went on an eight mile hike in these and they don't they don't fit so i'm gonna return them yeah they're just like oh i needed them for a party and i had my party and now i'm done so we had this pair of Saucony that we shipped out last week sometime and they showed up at our door with a sticker on them, you know, return to sender, wrong address. Then Poshmark sent us an email telling us, oh, they had their old address on file. We'll send you the new address and then you can reship it out, which is fine. So they emailed me a new label. I put it on a new box because the box came back and it was totally trashed because the box went all the way there and then came all the way back, which the boxes aren't made for that kind of transit. So when they they come back to us, they look like they've been beat. We got that back, switched it out, new box, new label, sent it out. And then we got a message from the buyer going, hey, so did you guys get these shoes back yet? Because they went to my old address. And I was like, Posh sent us a new label to send them to you, question mark. And he was like, nope, that's still the old address. So I'm going to be sending a new address. I don't know what's happening with this guy. Maybe he owns multiple houses. Maybe it's really hard to make sure that your stuff goes where you actually live. So we're waiting for that pair of shoes to come back a second time. We will repackage and reship it for a third time. And hopefully it'll get to where it needs to be. Because I'm sure that box will also look like it's been through like the third world war. The last pair that we had some customer issues on, which was on Poshmark, were a pair of Nike Air Zoom Accurate golf shoes. And these were new with tag. So I was kind of surprised. But the reason the buyer was complaining was that they were a men's size seven and a half 
which we ended up listing as a women's nine because that's what they convert to. And the lady said that, oh, these don't fit because they're a men's seven and a half and I wear a women's nine. I explained to her, hey, look, here's the conversion chart of how they convert. So they're the, they're the right size. And lo and behold, Poshmark sided with us and ended up denying their request and releasing the money. I've noticed that this has happened one or two other times because to be quite frank, people get the shoes and they don't like them and they think if they throw a temper tantrum about the label that Poshmark will go, okay. But the fact of the matter is that the European size is exactly the same when you look on the website and compare the two. And when you look at even the heel to toe measurements, it's exactly the same. So like, it's not like we list them and just like come up with a random number of our own fruition. We go off of like the data right on their website. Yeah, so that one was, you know, very easy because thank Thankfully, it happened on Poshmark and not eBay, because I guarantee if it was on eBay, it would have come back to us and we would have paid for that label. Yeah. And eBay would have been like, you're going to take it and you're going to like it. But at least eBay does generate sales, which is more than I can say from Mercari. Moving on to our best sales of the week. All three of these were surprisingly on eBay this week. We, Which uh, means they're going to be coming back to us shortly thereafter. <laughs> I really hope not. Like These are all really good sales that I'd like to stay sold. So next week we'll tell you all about how the shoes came back. The first was a pair of Niwatag Roka Phantom Aviators. I bought these a while ago for 65 and we ended up selling them for 119 So that was a pretty good sale for us. Then there was a pair of Air Force One 07 University Blues. Uh, I thought these were really cool. The insoles had like samurais on them, uh, but we paid like 10 bucks for them and they sold for 112. And the last pair that sold on eBay was a pair of Asics Gel Classics and it was a collab with Bodega called On The Road. We bought them for $10 and they ended up selling for 100 And they have the coolest colors. Like it was all these different combinations of pastel that I really liked. And I'm happy that they're sold for a nice price and going to someone who appreciates them. And probably my favorite pair of Asics I've ever seen. Not that there's anything wrong with Asics. They just aren't usually my style. But these were really cool. Like I would have worn them. Well, from what I've seen, with the exception of the gel nooses, all ASICs seem to be like really bright colors, like bright blue or bright green or whatever. But this was the first pair I had seen that was, you know, like a really light all pastel palette, which I really thought was cool. And I kind of wish that ASICs did more pairs like this. All in all, it was an excellent week with a lot of sales. So that's this week's episode of A Thrifted Pair Podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to hang out and listen and hope that you enjoyed our thoughts on how to dream big and set ambitious stretch goals and then break them down into a set of plans that work for you. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. You can talk to us directly on Instagram. At Little Elm Thrifts and Little Elm Goods. Until next time, see ya. See ya.